ask you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. And as I mentioned this morning, very often on holidays I don't provide children's questions, but I know that the children with us will be listening. Also, I'm going to ask the congregation, if you were here with us this morning, you remember that, of course, we looked at the triumphal entry on Sunday. I'm going to ask you to kind of condense the coming week when it comes to the liturgical calendar into one day. And so we'll find ourselves at Thursday as we look at our passage tonight, just so you have a sense of time. So Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 35. This is the word of God. And he said to them, when I set you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. And he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. There ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your word. Lord, in your holy scriptures, you sometimes bring bring us to places that are not only beyond our understanding, but that nonetheless still touch us deeply in our souls. We find ourselves with our Lord Jesus Christ praying in the garden is beyond our grasp. And yet, Lord, we're so thankful that you've given us this account, along with the others in the Gospels, of this most powerful moment as our Savior anticipates the cross. Lord, help us enter in tonight through your word and through the preaching of your word. So please send your Holy Spirit in a special way to help the preacher and help all of us to hear tonight as we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. A lot has happened since that great triumphal procession on Sunday morning. A lot has already happened. Jesus cleansed the temple the day after that. He has had a lot of interaction with not only his disciples, but others. Part of his interaction with the disciples was his interaction with Peter when he had to break the news to him that even though 
Peter thought that he was going to be bold up until the end that Peter would actually deny him three times before it was all over. He also interacted with the Pharisees and laid upon them the many woes because of their hypocrisies and warned them of the things that were coming down on them because of their, of their lot in life and because of their misunderstanding of who he was and misunderstanding of the gospel. As Jesus cleansed the temple and as Jesus talked to the Pharisees, offending them, certainly the apostles must have been thinking to themselves, this is not going to go well. In this short week, and time moves so fast, that Jesus will be anointed for his death. Jesus will present the Lord's Supper, telling the people then and telling us that he's giving his body and shedding his blood for our sakes. Thursday came fast after that week. Things are about to change dramatically. Jesus tells the apostles that they ought to be prepared for those things, tells them that they're to make provision for themselves. So far, he's been with them and they've been supported and he's made sure that their provisions were met. But now that he's going to be gone, they're going to have to fend more for themselves. Those interesting statements that Jesus makes about preparing for themselves and providing for themselves and having two swords. Matthew Henry says this, speaking as he was speaking for Jesus, but now that you're going forth, not as before, as a temporary mission provided for without purse or scrip, that's money, but into scenes of continued and severe trial, your methods must be different. For purse and scrip will now be needed for support and the usual means of defense. It's very odd that Jesus says you only need two swords. They must have thought two swords for 12 men isn't much if there's going to be any kind of insurrection or overthrow. We know for a fact that there does need to be at least one sword, and Peter needs a sword to do his act that would be corrected by Jesus. But while Jesus gives that to the people, to the disciples in particular, he makes sure that he reminds them that what's about to happen is the fulfillment of prophecy. And so what's almost more prominent, more important here are the prophecies that Jesus says are about to be fulfilled. You'll notice he said, I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Here's the original from Isaiah. I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death, he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus is about to pour out his very soul. He's going to pour out his very soul here in prayer. And he's going to pour out his very soul on the cross. And the way that his pouring out of his soul will come about, that judgment that will come upon him is that he'll be counted as a criminal. You take what we know from Isaiah and we take what we know about the cup that Jesus refers to being the cup of wrath, put them together, and you can certainly understand why Jesus is in need of prayer. Jesus is in need of prayer. And so he comes to Gethsemane where, where he would often go. It's his customary place to go for prayer. And he goes there with three of his disciples. And so we notice that Jesus here prays 
for himself. I can't find any place, maybe you can, where Jesus asks someone else to pray for him. Jesus' relationship with the Father was perfect fellowship, and so he didn't need to pray for him that he might not sin, or that he might do this, or that he might not do that, but he did need to pray. And he needed to pray himself. Because as he was in his humility, he was utterly dependent upon the presence of his Father to sustain him. We even read that there was a presence of an angel attending him. We have here a glimpse, a window into Jesus' frail human flesh. Even though he's the Son of God, he still needs to pray, and he needs to pray for himself. He knows his own need. He's facing the most intense challenge that he could ever face, that anyone could ever face. The most intense trial necessitates the most intensive prayer. I don't know how hard any of you have prayed about something, how desperately you've prayed about something, but have you ever given your all into prayer? Maybe praying desperately for sparing of a loved one or to be delivered from something or another. Maybe prayed in deep prayer about a sin that you're dealing with. But here, here Jesus enters into the depths of prayer that none of us could ever truly enter into because here we have the agony of sin from the perspective of a sinless soul. And so while we might recognize that Jesus can't relate to what it means to be a sinner, he can relate to what it means to bear the burden of sin. He takes it very, very seriously. We take, we take the curse of sin, we take the burden of sin, we take sin itself very lightly sometimes. But Jesus, as he anticipates bearing the burden of sin, doesn't take it lightly, having none of his own. He knew the full seriousness of sin and what the wages of sin were and what bearing the wrath for sin meant. I know I've used these quotes before, but here's a couple of quotes that I think capture it well. The suffering of his soul, the sufferings of his soul were the soul of his sufferings. J.C. Ryle wrote, the real weight that bowed down the heart of Jesus was the weight of the sin of the world, which seems to have now pressed down upon him with peculiar force. The preacher Charles Simeon said, His sufferings were such as no finite imagination can conceive. Handel in his Messiah, what I would call a tenor's lament, puts two passages together that I think touches on this profoundly from Psalm 69 in Lamentations. If you know the music and if you know the sense of it, you can feel that lament, you can feel the gravity. Thy rebuke hath broken his heart. He is full of heaviness. He looked for some to have pity on him, but there was no man neither found he any to comfort him. Behold and see if there is any sorrow like unto his sorrow. Jesus understood the seriousness and consequences of sin. And what he's about to undergo pales in comparison 
to anything that any man could ever do to him. He will suffer. He will suffer the full anguish and agony of what man can do. The crucifixion is a horrific thing, and that's what he's anticipating. And so he will have that agony of body, but also that torment of mind, and his very soul will be touched at the deepest depths of his being, and that's because he will feel the separation from the Father. He will feel the separation from the Father. That's an agony that will surpass every other agony. That brings to life the meaning of he descended into hell. And so here, Jesus in the garden, we read that he goes a little farther. He he falls on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And so we get some of the content of these prayers that were intentionally within the hearing of the disciples. Take this cup from me. Last year I made the focus, I believe, of the Good Friday service, that cup. And that cup in the Old Testament is a representation of the wrath of God being poured out, and we see it representing being poured out on disobedient Jerusalem, poured out on the nations, poured out on individual people, poured out in his wrath against sin and unrighteousness. That's what Jesus is anticipating when he thinks of the cup. Father, Abba, Father, this is from Mark, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but you will. But what you will. By the way, if you're wondering if our intercessor can really relate to you in some of the depths of your struggles and your trials, simply look at his anguish on the cross. Simply look at the way he prays here. You can understand the deepest depths of the agony of a soul. Well, all this is in the presence of his companions, three in particular, Peter, James, and John. And it's significant that they were the same three that were on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. They they saw Jesus in the height of his earthly visual glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And now these same three are right there in his proximity, right next to him, experiencing him at the deepest depths of his agony in prayer. They wanted to be so brave, didn't they? Peter, being Peter, said to Jesus he's willing to die with him if he has to. And the others agreed, and yet while they wanted to be so brave, they were weary. We read that he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And here it seems that they're going in and out of sleep. They're they're hearing some of his prayer, and, and sometimes they're awake. And I would have to imagine that there has to be some degree of adrenaline 
after what they've experienced with Jesus and what Jesus has told them is coming. But that adrenaline is simply not enough to keep them awake from their weariness and we're told that they were so weary and tired and exhausted because of the heaviness of their hearts over what Jesus has told them will happen to him. Well, Jesus again prays. We read, and again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. That hour, that cup, was before him. And it seems as though there's a third time, Jesus goes out and speaks to them a third time, and Mark suggests that there's three sections to this this time of prayer. We don't know the full content of the prayers. But we can be sure they all reference that hour and that cup. And Jesus is not using vain repetition, but you do get the sense of the heaviness of the issue that's before him. Perhaps you've prayed sometime or another where there's something so heavy on your heart that you pray the same thing over and over again. Even if it's simply, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. And here's Jesus in the anguish of his soul praying three times that that this hour might pass without the cross. This hour might pass without the cup. And we find Jesus face down. So intense is the anguish and the conflict of his heart, his mind, and his body altogether that he's sweating drops of blood that are falling to the ground. And he's turning to the Father. And he's seeking an answer to the prayer. I believe that the author of Hebrews is referring at least in part to this hour when he writes, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He was heard. He was heard. And the Father hears this prayer that this hour and this cup might might be taken from him. But the answer from the Father is, Son, the cup must be drunk for the sake of our people. It has to be. The hour can't pass, son. You can't pass the cup. You have to drink it. And here Jesus is sweating blood. I ask any of you parents, if your child was in such anguish that they were sweating drops of blood, the heart of any parent would just want to embrace that child and wipe those drops of blood away. And we would surely say, escape from this. You don't need to go through this. Fly away. The answer for Jesus can't be that. The answer is the, from the Father is, this must take place. 
And the answer from the Son, who is never in conflict with the Father, is exactly that, your will be done. Your will be done. Your will is my will. And so the time does come. It's Thursday and it's getting late. And soon that hour will come and it can't be avoided and the cup can't be bypassed. The time had come. We read, he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping? Taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And so the darkest hour is upon us as Thursday turns into Friday. And the wrath that Jesus is about to undergo can't be tempered. It can't be because sin needs to be fully atoned for. And the cup awaits Jesus. We close with this thought as we anticipate the cup being poured out upon Jesus. The imagery is this. What would it be like for us to drink that cup of wrath? What would it be like for a generation of sinners to drink the cup of wrath, to have the cup of wrath poured out? What we'll see with Jesus on the cross is Jesus himself drinking to the dregs the full cup of the wrath that each one of us deserves. But by the grace of God, Jesus took it for our sakes. Let's pray. Lord our God, we can hardly fathom the love that's been displayed for us in the passion of Christ, in the prayers of Christ, and as we anticipate the cross of Christ. Father, your love for us, we don't understand. We don't understand that your love for us is so profound that you gave your only begotten Son for our sakes. Jesus, your love is so beyond us, we don't understand why you would die for sinners like us to bear the wrath that you bore. Lord, we thank you for that love and that mercy. And as we have gone from a celebration, mournful in some ways this morning, anticipating entry into Jerusalem and the cross ahead, as we've entered into the prayers of our Savior tonight, and as we look to the cross, where we know that our salvation is secured in what is done there for our sakes. But we also know that that is not the end, that death could not hold our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, how we look forward in our worship to the celebration of the resurrection. 
And Lord, as we anticipate the truth that our Lord Jesus Christ has ascended to the right hand of glory, Lord, we even more look forward to the day when we will see you, Jesus, face to face. Our King, our Lord, our Savior lives. And so even in the midst of the heavy sorrow of such a prayer, we rejoice tonight and we give you all the praise in the name of the one who was dead, but who now lives and rules and reigns forever. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Amen.